0: Welcome to Pullback. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Heyo! Each episode, we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption. Then we tell you what we learned, fuck-ups and all. This episode, we're talking about the locavore movement, and I didn't do any research. So my (laughs) assumption is that the locavore movement is about trying to buy local, which is what I hope it is because that's what you you said we'll do a a like a locavore challenge and I was like that sounds like I should buy local and then I didn't look into it at all so
1: yes so yeah it is indeed about buying local um so I'll tell you a little bit more about the locavore movement when we get into the episode but like we're also talking about a movement that's sometimes just called eat local or the local food movement or um You might have heard of the 100 mile diet. Um, That's also very similar to what we're going to talk about today. Uh, And then also the slow food movement is not exactly the same, but it's also linked and we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, the reason that I wanted to do the locavore movement now, even though it's a horrendously bad time for me to have done the challenge because I'm traveling, <laughs> is because this episode will come out in August, and that's the easiest time of the year for people in North America and like Western Europe to try eating local. Didn't want to make people try it during the winter when like you're having turnip sandwiches or whatever. Uh, <laughs> There are lots of fruits and vegetables that are local and ready to pick right now. So hopefully people will be able to give it a try and it won't be too, too onerous at this time of year. All right. So in terms of like the flow of this episode, what I thought is I'd sort of start by talking about the basics of what like the locavore movement is and like the context that it arose in. And we'll talk a little bit about like what it actually means to eat local and um, some strategies. And then afterwards, there's been a bunch of controversy around the Eat Local movement. So what I wanted to do was go through some of the ethical debates
0: around it. So that's how we'll sort of, that'll probably be the last half of the episode. Sound good? Yeah, definitely. Before we get into it, though, I just, I just want to say the, <laughs> the 100 mile challenge would mean that I wouldn't be able to eat anything from further away than Vancouver Island or Hope. So 100 miles is like not very much. (laughs) That's why I made a face when you said it. I was like, um, I wouldn't even be able to eat stuff from the Okanagan. I'm in Vancouver for anyone listening who doesn't know. (laughs) Actually, I was going
1: to say this later in the episode, but the 100 mile diet, it was popularized by um, two people that live in Vancouver, actually. So they had pretty much exactly your 100-mile radius, and they lived off of that area for a year.
0: Did they have their own garden? I Are they growing their own... Do they have their own chickens? Like I, I
1: <laughs> So I didn't actually look into their case too much, but I did find an excerpt about their challenge in a book that I was reading, so I can read a little bit to tell you what their experience was like, if you'd like.
0: No, that's okay. I'm sure that most people wouldn't really be interested, but I just was like, how far... How far... Can I go when, and still be eating like within that 100 mile rate radius? And I was like, oh, not far at all. Yeah, no, they were super fucked. Like
1: um, <laughs> they, they couldn't find any um, any grains at first that were made in the area. So they had to like, they basically lived on of turnips and potatoes for the first portion. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, like sometimes they would go to the supermarket and they wouldn't be able to find anything. By the end of it apparently they did find some wheat to go, to like that they could use but they had to mill it themselves so like it's super fucking hard to do this.
0: <laughs> wow. I mean if I it, look if we're buying local and the limit is British Columbia then I could eat very well but if the limit yeah. is 100 miles <laughs> no.
1: Yes. So a locavore is technically somebody who eats only local food um but <laughs> I mean, there are two things here. One is that, like, the definition of the local can be different. So typically, locavores will think about the food that they buy in terms of food miles, but they're not going to be as restrictive as that 100 miles. So they'll just think about how far food traveled to get to them. Um, And the second thing is that in practice, very few people are like those, like, Vancouverites who did the 100-mile challenge. Like, very few people are eating exclusively local. But a lot of the people that, like, are um locavores will incorporate some non-local foods that they really like like chocolate and coffee are pretty common ones (laughs) you know very hard to get that locally sourced um at least if you live in north america not
0: if you're growing a coffee tree in your apartment
1: yeah i mean get on that kyla (laughs) (laughs) next year we're making you do the hundred mile diet (laughs) um but like they'll eat mostly local foods whenever they can and um They actually, the people that did the 100 mile diet, they did it mostly for like a book project. And that's what they're doing now. That like the approach of we'll have some chocolate and some coffee sometimes, but mostly we're eating local. And so just to give you a little bit of context, um, the like eat local or locavore movement starts to happen in the early 2000s. And it kind of has its moment in the mid 2000s. In 2007, it was voted the Oxford word of the year. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Fun fact from right before the Great Depression or the Great Recession. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So the the term locavore has kind of fizzled a bit since, but you can still find lots of people that are promoting the eat local or local food system uh, movements. And one of the things that's sort of a more recent trend in that variant, which we'll talk about a little more, is the farm-to-table movement in restaurants. Definitely eat local is still quite popular, as an idea, but the term locavore you won't hear it as often anymore, because it was kind of like a, a, a mid 2000s thing, you know. <laughs> so I guess we're naming this in like a very old way, but that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I'll give you just a little bit of the context. Um, so the average distance that food has um, travels before it's consumed has really increased due to globalization, particularly like since the since the 60s, and especially since the 90s. So international trade in food quadrupled between 1961 and 2006. So there's a huge jump in terms of like people used to get most of their food from a lot closer than they, than they do now. So just to give you an example of that, um, if we were living like in the 1960s, We as North Americans would probably only be able to eat grapes between June and December when they could be trucked up from California. But now almost half of the grapes that we eat are imported um, and they're often imported from countries in South America. So that's just one example of many of like how seasonality doesn't really exist for food anymore. It used to be the case that like peach season would happen and that would be the only non-canned peaches you'd ever have. Now you can kind of, they won't taste as good in the winter, but you can still find them in the supermarket. And that's um, fundamentally about the globalization of trade. There's also been an increase in how far food is traveling when it's traveling within a country, which is another part of that trend. So um, in the United States, for example, um, If you look at grain products, uh, the transportation, like the the amount that they travel has increased by 137% between the late 70s and the 2000s. So pretty big increases, both domestically and internationally. Um, And another thing that's really important to set the context here is um, the way that supermarket chains work has changed, right? We've got a lot more large grocery chains And um, they'll often set up distribution at these big distribution sites now. So even if you're getting something, like you're buying something from Walmart and it's um, being sourced from a farm that's very close to you, probably it still had to travel to a distribution center that might be nowhere near you before it comes back to your local store. And that's basically just because um, uh, supermarkets are designing their supply chains to ensure that everything is reliably in supply. So you don't have those like barren shelves that we saw in the early pandemic. Um, rather than trying to minimize the transport distance. So food's traveling further.
0: (laughs) Yikes. I mean, I'm not surprised. I feel like fundamentally, I knew that that was happening. But still, like, oh, we're just uh, buying from the farm next door. But first, it has to go to a different province to be sorted and then shipped back to us. So it's like being shipped twice, I'm getting it half as fresh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So why eat local? That's another question that might be in listeners' minds right now. Um, there are a bunch of different reasons that locavores will choose to eat local, um, and some of them are ethical and some of them aren't. So some of the non-ethical things are that they find the food tastier, um, that it's more nutritious. And then some of the ethical claims are that it's better for the planet, both because it reduces fossil fuel use from transport and because it decreases the environmental harm caused by industrial agriculture, which we've talked about a lot
0: on this podcast, so I won't belabor that point. It makes the the supply chain smaller. If you're buying from somewhere nearby, it doesn't go through, you know, 12 different companies in order to get to you. So there's a lot more traceability in labor standards, right? <laughs> no, that's a
1: really good point. And that's the reason that they also say it's more socially just, um, and also, um, lots of times, locavores will eat local because it supports local economies and local farmers. So we're going to talk about those three ethical claims because they're not totally, um, I think the thrust of them is true, um, but there's been a lot of disagreement about whether eating local is more environmentally friendly, whether it's actually socially just, um, and whether it's actually, should we be supporting local economies at the detriment of economies elsewhere? Um, is those are all kind of questions that we'll go through at the end of the episode. But first, I want to talk briefly about slow food. Is there anything that comes to mind when you think of the term slow food? Like, what does that evoke for you?
0: <laughs> I assume it means food that has traveled by truck or sea as opposed to by airplane. But it could also just be maybe I'm a slow eater. <laughs>
1: So it's funny, I read this whole thing about slow food, thinking that it was kind of like slow fashion, and it didn't even click for me until the very end, that it was like actually a direct opposition to fast
0: food. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. oh, wow. Oh, so food that just takes a little longer to make. Okay.
1: <laughs> well, it's not quite that, but um, but yeah, it is a reaction to fast food. So the slow food movement really hates fast food. Um, So it's a movement that was, it was started in the 1980s by this leftist in Italy um, named Carlo Petrini. Um, And basically the movement started as a protest against a McDonald's that was trying to be set up um, in Rome. And like a bunch of Italians were like, fuck no McDonald's here, we do not want this. Um, And it sort of starts the slow food movement.
0: I'm pretty sure that there is a McDonald's in Rome now, though.
1: Oh, now for sure. (laughs) no so it starts as this like anti-mcdonald's thing and it's very much about like you know we need to preserve like italian food traditions but the slow food movement has really evolved since and now it's sort of more about food that recognizes a connection between your plate between the planet politics people and culture so now it's much more comprehensive and includes things like fair trade and the environmental impact and So it's almost like a a more sort of like holistic approach to eating local. You're not just looking at eating local, you're looking at eating values.
0: Yeah, because it's really easy to eat local in Alberta and be supporting a company that maybe forced all of their workers to get COVID in the last year.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like you could be eating Frito-Lay chips in Kentucky, whatever whatever (laughs) state is on strike, and you'd be eating local, but... Doesn't make it ethical, necessarily. Yeah, so slow food is about sort of a more holistic approach. Um, Okay, so let's say you want to eat local. How do you go about doing that? I've got a few strategies. The first one is to buy into a CSA share. Have you ever heard of CSAs before?
0: No, maybe. Tell me more.
1: So CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture. Um, and it's basically like a subscription service that helps you support a local farm. It's the way I like to think about it. So basically what happens is you sign up for your CSA share at the beginning of the growing season, and the farmer will deliver a box of whatever is ripe and in season, either to your house directly or to like a, a set delivery point where people pick it up. That's rad. Yeah, it's super rad. Um, usually it happens on like a weekly basis until the end of the growing season. It's just whatever's fresh that week.
0: Oh, cool. That's almost a teaser for an episode we're doing coming soon about uh, food delivery. I'm in charge of it. I should know what I'm talking about. Oh, the meal subscription services. It's like a, a better version. Of, like no, no spoilers for that episode, but a better version of what a meal subscription service is, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you're only getting vegetables and fruits, so it won't give you like your whole meal, but... Um... It's a really good way to eat seasonally, which is another strategy we'll talk about in a bit. Um, so yeah, CSAs are really good for small farmers because, um, so usually small farmers will have to like have a combination of, um, they'll sell to grocery stores and restaurants, and then they also sell at farmers markets on the weekends. So having CSAs is really good because it gives them a guaranteed income source. So They know they've got at least this many consumers for whatever they grow, um, which is really great for their sort of certainty and stability. CSAs are also really good because it um, it's a great way for you to be able to try different types of fruits and vegetables that might not otherwise be something you'd think about. So definitely recommend. I really wanted to sign up for one in Ottawa, but they were like all sold out. So,
0: <laughs> I, oh, I wonder to. if I can sign up for one in Vancouver. I've never even heard of it. Yeah, I'm sure you can find some around.
1: Um, it's probably too late in the season to do it now, but like next spring. All right, so um, the next strategy you can take to eat local is to shop at farmer's markets. Uh, I imagine most of our listeners will know what farmer's markets are, but in case you've never heard of them, they're basically just physical markets where farmers will directly sell their food to customers. So some of them are open every day during the spring and summer, some of them are open all year round, and then others will only be open once per week. So it really depends. I got a stat on how many farmer's markets there are in the States.
0: Uh. <laughs> oh, interesting. I would be interested in that.
1: Yeah. Um, so there are apparently more than 8,600 registered farmer's markets in the U.S.
0: Oh, cute. I wonder if that counts the <laughs> Seattle uh, market at Pike Place, which I don't know if that should count because it's kind of touristy, but also I love the Pike Place market. I don't know if you've been, but i <laughs> it's
1: great. <laughs> Yes, I've definitely been. It's been a while, though. Um, so yeah, and you can also um, you can find uh, Canadian farmer's markets as well. You can find them pretty much anywhere. Um, they've been really increasing in the last couple decades around the world. So strategy three for eating local is to buy from local and independent grocers. So in the same way that when you're taking a slow fashion approach, you're sort of disengaging from those fast fashion tre- um, chains, Try to do that with grocery chains as well because they're perpetrating this sort of industrial agriculture thing. <laughs> so instead of buying from a supermarket chain, you can ask yourself, is there a local independent grocer that buys from farms that are in your area? I'm, like, very happy with the one that exists in my neighborhood of Ottawa. Um, it's an, a local chain called Urban Spice. Um, I really like them. But So I, I don't know. Do you have a go-to one in Vancouver or...
0: Ah, uh, my waste free store is pretty good at buying local for the most part is for what they can so Nada in Vancouver shout out shout out but otherwise I'm pretty bad I just go wherever's closest for sure yeah and we'll
1: talk about like um the sort of trade offs when it comes to eating locally a bit later cuz it's it does take more time and often more money to do so so another strategy for eating local though is to eat seasonally um So, eating seasonally basically just means that whenever you're eating fresh produce, you're looking for um, buying it at the time of year that it's naturally ready to harvest in your area. So, you'd be buying like strawberries in June ish, tomatoes in August ish, and squash in October ish. Depending on where you are, it's going to be different everywhere, but those are kind of the general times for North America. You're not, it basically means like you're not buying produce. In winter, that is definitely not going to be something that could be produced naturally in your area. So not buying strawberries in Ottawa in January.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Or when I'm craving a watermelon.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that would go against the principle of
0: eating seasonally. Um, I'm sure we all do it, though. (laughs) Well, especially in Canada, if you're eating seasonally, it's like, I hope you like corn during the winter. (laughs) I hope you like potatoes and squash, because that's what grows here in the winter. I hope you like vegetables that have been (laughs) freeze-dried. Exactly.
1: So one way to eat seasonally is to do something called cooking forward, and that basically means that you plan your meals around what is seasonally available. So rather than deciding on a recipe and then buying the ingredients, you start with ingredients and then um, find a recipe, basically. Um, you can also get acquainted with what food is in season throughout the year where you live. Um, so in the States, there's the seasonal food guide. And on our research note, we have um, a guide for Canada as well, but I'm sure they exist for whatever country you are in. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere in winter, it generally eating seasonally means eating lots of root vegetables, uh, whereas in the summer, there are lots of fresh fruit and vegetable options that you have.
0: Mmm, squash. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. So those who eat seasonally will often rely on preserved vegetables and fruits over the winter months. So like rather than buying fresh tomatoes in February, you might use canned tomatoes or sun-dried. So that's a good seasonal principle. The next one is supporting farm-to-table restaurants. Um, And I think I'd mentioned this earlier, but the farm-to-table movement has become really popular with chefs in the last decade. And basically what it means is that If you're uh, an organization that produces like meals for people, so it could be a restaurant, could be a cafeteria, something like that, farm-to-table basically means that you're serving local food and you're doing it through directly acquiring it from the producer. So whether it's a farmer or a winery or a fishery or some other kind of food producer. Farm-to-table generally also promotes food traceability and transparency. So oftentimes if you're um, eating at a restaurant that – does farm to table, um, they'll identify where that food came from on the menu itself, or they'll be able to tell you. So it's a good strategy to support restaurants that are doing that. You can also grow your own food. That's a great strategy. So Kyla's coffee tree. (laughs) (laughs) in seven years it's gonna pay dividends
0: (laughs) i have like the opposite of a green thumb my friend gave me lettuce which is basically impossible to kill but i keep forgetting to water it during our heat waves (laughs) and it's it's not dead but it's not doing great
1: all right so maybe kyla doesn't grow her own food (laughs) but uh you can also participate in things like community gardens or other local food events that's another thing that you can do So do you want to talk about our challenges now? Um, Why don't you go first? (laughs)
0: Mm, I did poorly. Me too. (laughs) I think the best thing I did was today when I was coming home, I bought weed that was grown in BC and I bought gin that was also produced in BC, in Victoria. And that's because- I'm sorry, did
1: you say wheat or weed?
0: Weed. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Okay, I'm not impressed. VC is weed Mecca. That's not hard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, otherwise for the rest of the food, I've been eating out a lot. Um I've I've eaten I've had a yeah, I've had a pretty wild two weeks, but I have eaten at restaurants that are local restaurants, but I cannot guarantee that their food was local. <laughs> I ate it meat twice. Shout out to Vancouver's greatest vegan restaurant. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, so, like, I didn't do much better. Um, We picked a really bad time for this, uh, (laughs) to do this challenge, (laughs) because I just got back to Ottawa from Alberta, and I'm here for three days, and then I'm going up to northern Ontario,
0: um, so... Oh, so you can't, like, buy groceries?
1: Well, I did buy... I bought one set of groceries that would last me for the three days, not for the full meals, so I bought all of that local, um... So I found a cheese that is from Quebec because um, Ottawa like, on the Ontario-Quebec border. So Quebec is, like, really close. I bought a demi-baguette from <laughs> a local bakery, and then I brought bought fruit that was uh, Ontario and Quebec. So I felt pretty okay about those, but, like, on the balance of what I've eaten, like, that is a very small proportion of it. Most of the stuff is from, like, takeout. My friend made me dinner tonight, and apparently the lettuce was local, so this is good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think the only groceries I've bought have been local. I bought bread and apples, and apples are grown in the Okanagan, so as long as we're allowed to shop from more than 100 miles away, then I'm okay.
1: Perfect. Yeah, I feel like I ordinarily would be better at this challenge, because the grocery store that I've shopped from, like, is usually pretty good with local stuff, but... Super super mobile time for me, so I kind of failed at this challenge.
0: Yeah, I tried. I try. I mean, to be fair to myself, I do. I do try to be local whenever I shop, with the exception of bananas. Sorry, bananas.
1: <laughs> You're a monocrop. <laughs> All right. Well, should we talk about some debates about eating local? Because, I mean, if it turns out that it's not actually good, then we'll feel better about failing the challenge,
0: you know? How could it not be? Oh, because (laughs) it's destroying other economies around the world that depend on us because of colonialism. Cool story.
1: (laughs) So, yeah, we're going to talk about some of the different um, debates around whether it is ethical to eat local. Um, As I had mentioned before, Locavores justify eating local based on the environmental benefits, um, benefits for social justice, and also um, an inherent desire to develop local economies. And so um, a lot of the critiques around um, local food, they fall into either like disagreement that those are just aims, or um, what's called the local trap, which is basically the idea that People are using the term local um, in a way that's assumed to be desirable, but oftentimes local doesn't actually get at the benefits that they want. So when we talk about each of the debates, it's basically one of those two claims that they're making.
0: Well, I'm sure that one of the issues is that if you're buying locally in Canada, we're not doing very well by our agricultural workers, so... No, no.
1: Yeah, not that agricultural workers anywhere are doing well, but.
0: <laughs> uh, oh. Okay, carry on.
1: Yeah, so the first big theme that I want to talk about is um, localism versus cosmopolitanism, because oftentimes debates about the locavore movement come down to these two sets of values clashing. Um, so one way to frame the locavore movement is to really think about um, Localism and cosmopolitanism, and to what extent they are inherently intention, and if they are, um, what we're losing from focusing on the local instead of um, the universal or the cosmopolitan. So localism basically sees um, farms and food producers as repositories of knowledge about how to best grow food in a particular place. So in the ideal, the local food system basically means that growers can make the best choices for the land, knowing that community members will share the concerns that they have and will support their choices, even if it means a higher price for food. So you can kind of see how that has some some value and could lead to more sustainable choices. Localism also promotes um, the sorts of kinds of justice and democratic trust that really can only arise when you have face-to-face interactions with a producer, so you know who they are, um, and you can have develop some level of trust over time that they're making good and ethical choices, which is, again, something that's very hard to do under our like current industrial system where we're buying from supermarkets.
0: I don't want to completely derail this because I have something to say that has nothing to do with anything you've just said, but for lunch today, I had a crepe and I just went to their website and it says that they use local ingredients. So point one for me for this challenge. Carry on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I guess uh, Kyla's crepe being local is good um, because um, it maybe can help to develop that kind of rich um, relationship that localism likes. But what's what's cosmopolitanism on the other side, right? So cosmopolitanism is, it's made up of two basic ideas. So the first ideal is like, it's called universality. And basically it's the idea that we should take um, seriously and value all human life, irrespective of where people are, right? So that there's like universal human value um, that all humans matter, you know, and and that we ought to respect their rights. And so the second aspect of it is um, the respect for legitimate difference. So the idea that people are different, cultures are different, and we need to have a respect for that. And so obviously, like, those two values clash a little bit in cosmopolitanism, but it, it ends up creating this system where the idea is that, um, cultural exchange is inevitable, cultural exchange is, is valuable, and that cultures are all already mixtures. And so it presents the idea that we can learn from diversity. So cosmopolitanism is basically about, um, all of humanity, and it also about recognizing diversity as being really valuable. So you can kind of put that up against localism, um, because localism is about us and them to a certain degree, right? So cosmopolitanism is often really skeptical of localism. So, um, if you're taking it from that sort of like cosmopolitan or international point of view, um, claims to like purely local can often be seen as the consequences of efforts to sort them from us um for example to establish boundaries that distinguish um their weed eating culture from our rice eating one or you know different examples of that so you can you can easily see how um there becomes a clash there between the local and the cosmopolitan and you can think about i don't know if you remember the pad thai robot from that episode with Lex <laughs>
0: like a year and a half ago is that where the robot was it, it was able to hitchhike all the way through Canada but then it got to one place in the United States and disappeared. Yeah. No, brah. That's a totally different robot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the pad Thai robots, the one that can taste food.
1: Yeah. The pad Thai robot is the, is the robot that tests pad Thai for authenticity. (laughs) So cosmopolitans would say there's no such thing as an authentic pad Thai. We love this like weird pad Thai. Somebody's created. Fuck you. Robot is basically the idea. Um, and just to give you another example of how localism ends up in this kind of like, um, cultural racism perspective sometimes, it's something called the Luca Ordinance. So there's this town in Italy called Luca that it, they banned restaurants from serving foods that were not considered to be part of that region's heritage cuisine. So like, As you can, like, that example is a really stark one where localism there is really just culinary racism masquerading as the preservation of a culture. So, like, that kind of localism is really bad. But the local food movement isn't primarily about policing cultures, and um, there are versions of localism that can also really embody that sort of cosmopolitan value. So, sometimes one of the clashes that's levied against localism is that it's, like, low-key racism, And, like, you definitely want to oppose forms of localism that are that, but the local movement really isn't inherently about um, promoting certain cuisines. It's not really about that. Second debate, is eating local better for the environment? Thoughts, Kyla?
0: (laughs) Oh, I would like to say yes, because your food's not traveling from as far. It's not being flown in necessarily. But I guess it depends on what your agricultural practices are, if you're supporting a i don't know an agriculture in your area that's really terrible for the environment maybe it's not as good but i i would hope that it would still be better than flying your food in
1: yep so that's um that's like the right conclusion to draw um i basically wrote sometimes but not necessarily just to give you the setup as you mentioned um having food travel more generally takes more fossil fuels so there was a World Watch Institute study that found that the average American meal uses up to 17 times more petroleum than a locally produced meal of the same food could do. So really that like transportation is a big part of how, what your sort of like emissions footprint of the food that you eat is. And it's increasing as the distances that food is traveling is increasing. So that's important because somewhere between 12 and 20% of The energy supply is used in food production, processing, manufacturing, distribution, and preparation. So food takes up somewhere between 12 and 20% of energy use. I mean, a lot of that comes from animal agriculture. So if you're eating plant-based, you're doing better. But still, Still, um, food is a pretty substantial um, portion of the energy that we use. And transportation does take up a big chunk of that, um, but it's it's not as big as some other elements. So this is one way that localism gets um, critiqued a little bit. So transport of food is really only responsible for 11% of total energy used in the food system. So it's a substantial portion. If you can lessen that, then great. But if you compare that with the 26% that's used in the home preparation of food or the 29% that's consumed in food processing... Like, those are bigger chunks that would probably be better to deal with. The other thing, as you mentioned, um, is that not all transportation has an equivalent environmental impact. So air transport uses about twice as much energy as um, driving um, by road per mile. Um, And it uses 20 times more than transporting by ship or rail. So if you're transporting food by ship or rail, you might not actually be doing that badly for the environment, whereas air freight probably is going to be worse. Um, So the result of that is basically that eating locally is sometimes better for the environment, but it really depends on how that local food was produced and also how the alternative is transported. The example that's often given is tomato growing. so tomatoes, if you're buying them out of the growing season in Canada and the United States, it's usually less emissions intensive to truck the tomatoes from Florida um, where they can be grown outside and then they get driven up, rather than to buy from a local farm that's using a hydroponic system that, and that's especially the case if the like if you're in a place where your electricity grid isn't particularly renewable, then that's especially worse.
0: That makes perfect sense. I should have thought of that, considering we recently did our episode about the flowers industry, and it's the same sort of answer there, where it's like, well, buying local isn't always the best when you're powering a greenhouse in minus 40 degree weather. (laughs) Yeah, it's totally true.
1: That's a really great example to bring up. It's complicated, right? Because it's not just the one-to-one, right? Let's say you're eating seasonally, And you're going to choose to eat local but canned tomatoes over the winter. That's still probably better than bringing in the trucked tomatoes. So it's a really it's really tough to make that calculus. But the like short answer is that eating local can be good for the environment, but it's not like just by eating local without looking into anything else. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're you're doing better for the environment. So um, the suggestion um, that I've seen is if you do want to eat locally and your reasons are environmental, focus on seasonality instead of focusing on food miles and pay attention to how your non-local food is being shipped. A couple of other things you might want to pay attention to, um, one, eating more plant-based foods, that's going to reduce your emissions footprint, Uh, two, buying from sustainable farm operations. Three, minimizing your food waste. The average Canadian throws out 63% of what it buys. That's
0: bad. Wait, what? The average Canadian throws away more than half of the food that they buy? More than half.
1: Yeah, food waste is huge. Um, and then fourth, preparing food in a way that uses less energy. So...
0: Eat more salad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not about the raw food diet, but it does take less energy to cook to not cook stuff. (laughs) So, if you're looking for ways to reduce your emissions footprint, that is one. Um, It leads to this really weird debate, though. There's this whole thing with like the chicken industry being like, "Yeah, it's more environmentally friendly to buy our pre-cooked chickens and to cook one in your oven." It's like. (sighs) I guess if you're looking at environmentalism from like a very, very narrow standpoint, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, although the principles that I had mentioned, things like looking for sustainable farms, um, minimizing your food waste and uh, cooking efficiently, they're not directly about eating local, um, but it actually can fit into the local movement to some extent. So eating local can help to focus on sustainability when you are thinking about localism in those terms that I described before, where it's sort of, It's about developing those trust relationships with producers. And it's about producing a a culture of food that is mindful of sustainability and where it's not about price. It's about a sort of holistic sense of what is good for the local community um, and the the land uh, that farmers are operating on. So from that perspective, even if the emissions calculus is kind of different, Like even if you are growing those hothouse tomatoes when you're buying them in February, it might still be good to support a local farmer all the time if their mindset is looking at sustainability in a broader sense. So even if that one thing that you're purchasing has a higher emissions footprint, the overarching relationship that you have with that local farmer might offset that. And that's one thing that I really think these kinds of very narrow emissions calculated um, sustainability calculuses really, they really miss out, you know? I also think it's easier to think in terms of sustainability when you're buying in an area that you live in and that you know. So I'll take the example of fisheries. If everybody ate seafood that was from local fisheries, there would probably be much more political pressure to ensure that fisheries were actually sustainable. So that's one way in which reorienting towards the local, even if it doesn't have like immediate or really proximate impacts, can have long run impacts that are good for the environment. And so that, that sort of lack of visibility that comes along with the global food system, I think, is a huge part of the problem. And a lot of the critiques of the local food mo- movement um, fail to recognize that. That would be my critique of them. <laughs> All right. You want to talk about systematic equality inequality in the food system?
0: Yeah, that's the thing I have been most interested in listening to you talk about because it seems to be maybe the number one issue for that I would see, you know what I mean? Like the other arguments you've given, I'm like, meh, okay, sure. But this is the one where I'm like, oh, okay, it might actually be a problem.
1: Yeah. So um, there are a couple of different elements of this. So the first one I'm going to talk about is um, a critique that I think applies to all ethical consumption in general, but it applies in particular to eat, eating local. So. This is the fact that only a small portion of society is able to actually afford to eat virtuously, right? So there are a couple of reasons that this is particularly true in food. Um, so for all areas of consumption, there are some, you know, virtuous goods that people aren't going to be able to afford and are going to have to go for cheap options. But in terms of food, some people live in food deserts where nutritious food is often not available at all. Or it can be so overpriced that it's out of reach, um, much more expensive than it would be in other neighborhoods. Others also just don't have the time, don't have the appliances, don't have the knowledge to prepare meals that are from the unprocessed food items that you often get when you're trying to buy local. And so there are lots of ways in which um, people are excluded from buying local. And I want to quote from an article um, by Nancy Snow on this because I think she put it really well. So systemic inequality with respect to food options actively harms those who are condemned to ingest cheap, readily available fast food, junk food, fruits and vegetables that are sprayed with pesticide, meat, poultry, and fish that are fed on grain that has been loaded with antibiotics, and so on. So that's basically the idea that from an ethical perspective, even if we're making these ost- ostensibly virtuous choices... Um, Uh, when we've got sort of extra money and capacity to do so, it can't really be seen as virtuous because um, those choices are occurring within a larger context of systemic injustice. So to the extent that we ignore this systemic injustice, we're complicit in perpetuating an unjust and harmful system. To put it in like layman's terms, um, like you can think about that episode of The Good Place where people are getting like no points can't get into Huv- to the good place because you know they ate a non like fair trade tomato at some point right <laughs> you know that we we live in this shitty system that is super unjust and where people can't access virtuous food and so even in being able to access virtuous food the fact that we're buying into the system that other people can't access it takes away from the virtuousness of it however like i don't think that this means people should give up i think what this means is that you fight the system, the systemic oppression, right? So you can't just eat local. That's not good enough to be just. You also have to actively work to address the systemic inequality in the food system, or you can apply that to like any other area.
0: I have a suggestion. What if we took all of the fossil fuel subsidies and gave them to the agricultural industry instead? No! (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, would that be worse?
1: (laughs) Well, if you're giving it to big like to big agribusiness, then yes. <laughs> well, maybe not worse, but it wouldn't actively be better.
0: No, give it to local like to to small to small farms. Okay, I'm into that.
1: <laughs> you could also use it to pay for a universal basic income and to ensure that people have access to healthy nutritious food in their communities, <laughs> to give <laughs> subsidies so that food's not so expensive in like the north of Canada, like <laughs> There's lots of other things we could do.
0: We give a lot of money to f- the fossil fuel industry to prop it up. So, <laughs>
1: yes, <laughs> let's use it to pay for people to have good food. That'd be great. So now we're getting we're going to get into the question: Is eating local just? Which I suspect is the um, the argument that you're the most interested in. I think. <laughs> I think this is the one that you you said you were interested in. So um, just as a quick reminder, locavores offer a couple of different reasons that eating locally is more socially just. Um, so the first one is that it strengthens local economies. The second one is that it fosters those richer food systems that are based on understanding and trust. And the third is that it supports endangered family farms. So the first claim that it strengthens local economies. Um, so for that claim, the big question is really whether it's ethical to support local economies specifically, or whether we should have like a more global mindset. And one key objection that's been made is this idea that we should value all of those who are affected by our actions, regardless of whether they are physically proximate to us or our community, which I think seems fairly fair. So if we're taking that perspective, then buying locally potentially harms poor communities in developing countries. Um, and those people may actually be more helped by the purchases that we're making. So worldwide, um, 2.5 billion people depend on agriculture for their livelihoods. So, so far, this seems as like it's a pretty, um, pretty reasonable objection. Um, it's what has been called um, a tragic dilemma of eating virtuously. So it's this idea that we can't choose virtuously for ourselves without harming innocent others. And in this case, eating locally is harming innocent others who are food producers in developing countries.
0: Yeah, that's the argument that I was thinking about this whole episode, basically, was like, well, sure, it's easy for me to buy from the farm down the street. But what about the guy who has been making money off of the way I've been purchasing for the last 20 years?
1: Yeah, exactly. But I think there's actually a huge problem with this objection Um, and like, If the claim is basically that eating local is bad because you're taking an important source of income away from developing country producers, that assumes that like it's better for these countries to be exporting food. And that's actually a hugely complicated question that doesn't have a super clear answer.
0: Oh, yeah, because if we're taking all of the food from the local farmers, then there's I mean, in a lot of cases, there's not enough food left for the folks who are living locally to them, right? I think that's a big problem with like the chocolate industry, if I recall correctly, when we were talking about that was that like, or maybe it was coffee. I don't know. We've done so many episodes, but the people who live closest <laughs> Narrator, to those it farms, was both. <laughs> <laughs> they're not the ones who are drinking and or eating that product, right? They they don't get it at all. It's like a luxury good for them, even though it's made down the street.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And also um, the... Like economic drivers of having people produce those cash crops like chocolate and coffee um, or other food goods that are exported, it like comes at a detriment of being able to produce food that people might actually eat. So there's a huge amount of agricultural workers who are food insecure. It's a really big problem, and it is connected to that global food trade system. So In addition to that question of, like, people being losing the ability to feed themselves on the land because um, they have to serve the, the global food trade system, agricultural workers are also subject to hugely dangerous and exploitative working conditions, and that includes human trafficking. So, like being a farm worker or being a fisherman, some of the most dangerous jobs in the world. And oftentimes people are not doing it freely. There's a lot of forced labor that happens. There's a lot of wage theft that happens. There's a lot of child labor that happens. So there are real harms that are happening in these industries.
0: Well, and that's not the only thing, right? Is like, maybe you're going to talk about it in a second, but the, it really promotes the idea of like a monocrop and it destroys local economies and ecosystems because, the only thing your country can grow now is palm oil because it's the only thing that makes money when in reality you're destroying that rainforest that probably provided a ton of food for ages and ages, right? But now the only thing that grows there are palm trees. No,
1: exactly. That's a really good point. Um, And that's why um, if we're talking about an objective of food sovereignty, which is the idea that like communities can feed themselves, one of the huge pillars of it is localizing the food system. And so buying local can actually, like, it, it actually may not harm those communities because it takes away some of that pressure um, from the global trade system. And so, like, even if, yes, you're taking away that income from, like, the agri business that is, you know, importing that, that food and then indirectly from the farmers, like, at the moment, in the long run, it may actually be better for us to localize food systems.
0: Well, people are resilient. If they lose a part of their crop that they were making money on before, then next year they're going to grow a different crop in a smaller section of that land and then perhaps sell it locally instead, right, at a local farmer's market.
1: Yeah, and it becomes easier to do when there aren't huge, like, um, international conglomerates that are, like, pressuring local communities um, and becoming, like, the sole buyers. But anyway, um, I also, in addition to the the idea that – um It may not be good to support um, global trade in food. Um, There's also another problem that I have with with this objection, because I think if opting out of industrial agriculture is a strategy for transforming our food systems in a way that benefits justice, I think there's actually not a dilemma here at all. Um, So it is true that the most immediate harm of not buying a factory farmed chicken, um, it's not to Tyson Foods, it's to the chicken processor and the chicken farmer that are working either directly for Tyson or like um, in a contractual relationship with them. So it's the little guys that get hurt the most um, at the immediate point. But if buying humane or local food becomes a consumer trend, there are at least two pathways to transforming the system that benefit those little guys. So the first one is that consumer preferences can make producers, um, ethical producers more competitive, which makes the system itself more just, which benefits the little guys. And two There's a possibility that public attention to the, like, ethical issues um, with the food system leads to legislative change, which could transform the system in a way that promotes justice. So as long as you have that transformation aspect, I actually don't think there's a dilemma to eating local from that perspective. Um, So let's go to the other two claims that um, the locavore movement makes about why eating locally is more socially just. And just a quick reminder, um, the next one is that it fosters richer food systems that are based on understanding and trust. Um, so this ideal of fostering like a culture of local food and building those trust relationships, it can be ethically good. And also the, the third one, which is supporting family farms instead of agribusiness, that can be a really good thing from a human and environmental perspective. Agricultural communities um, in rich countries as well as poor countries generally have more people that live in poverty than people in urban communities. And the decline of family farming is actually a huge driver of this trend. Um, So just to give you an example, um, in 1920, um, there were 10 different commodities, including fruits and vegetables that were produced on more than half of Iowa's farms. But by 1997, that had fallen to just two, corn and soybeans. Um, So Really, like rather than having these communities um, that have family farms that are producing a variety of foods, you've got a whole bunch of monocrops. And soybeans, we know, goes mostly to animal feed. I think the same is true of corn. So, not even really food that people are eating anymore. And, you know, this is a problem for environmental reasons um, because uh, industrial agriculture um, has huge environmental harms. They've been really well documented. Um, but also because working conditions on industrial farms are quite exploitative in a way that's not really, in a way that like is not necessarily true on a family farm. Um, so the the ideal of having like smaller family-run farms um, is probably better from like a the perspective of building equitable social fabrics. Um, the one big problem with this argument is basically just that buying local doesn't really address the industrialized farm versus family farm question because your local producer could be like a huge industrial feedlot or a vegetable farm that exploits migrant laborers and like local isn't really the operative issue at play here so that's why like looking at more holistic approaches like the slow food movement might be a better alternative to just saying I only buy within a 100 miles that would be my perspective but I don't know. Overall, I think um, the local food movement has a lot of um, really good points behind it. Um, uh, if you take it sort of from a holistic perspective, I think it's a really good thing to build into your consumption. Uh, but what do you think?
0: Yeah, I I think it's basically what I was expecting of it, which is which is a little bit comforting for us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm finally starting to get it. I'm going to continue to try and buy local from BC. But yeah, I guess we need—I mean, just like with any episode, we need—we need systemic change. We need rules put in place that won't let farms exploit their workers, <laughs> and it doesn't matter where you live. Yeah, it's true.
1: I don't know. I think eating local is a, a good thing to do. I—I I think it will be very hard for me to give up the freedom to eat lettuce in the winter, though. <laughs>
0: Yeah, there's a lot of food. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, it would be great to just buy stuff when it's in season. But now we're so – like, the global market has spoiled us so much that I don't know. Like, I think something crazy would have to disrupt the system in order for us to go back, you know? Like, I love being able to eat bananas 12 months a year. (laughs)
1: Yeah, absolutely. But, like, I'm definitely going to start – I mean, I'm definitely going to try to, like – um, freeze fruits when they're fresh in the summer, and then, you know, maybe eat more frozen fruit in the winter and stuff like that. I don't think with these kinds of things, you need to go to the extreme of I only eat food that can be produced within 100 miles, you know, like taking a balanced approach where you're, you're mostly trying to be ethical, um, but recognizing that you do like bananas in the winter, and like, that's fine. <laughs> you know?
0: Or you could ask your grandmother to show you how to can stuff.
1: <laughs> Hell yeah! I really want to try pickling things, but I'm kind of worried I'm going to kill myself on accident.
0: <laughs> I don't know. My dad pickled stuff two years ago, but it, like our problem was that he, because the pickling process just made so many pickles that he didn't know what to do with all of them.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's another thing. How do you like um, a lot of the the food preservation stuff is? A lot easier to do when you're in a house, um, a lot harder to do when you're in a 600-square-foot apartment.
0: (laughs) Yeah, like where am I going to put a deep freeze, right? Like in my closet where I keep all my cat food? Probably not.
1: Although I do know somebody who in university had like a tiny apartment and had a deep freeze in his bedroom.
0: (laughs) That is commitment, it's
1: commitment. It was also slightly seemed murdery, but it was just because he liked to buy discount chickens. <laughs> was it Robbie? <laughs> it was not, although that would be on brand for him, too. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I don't know. This was a, a nice little episode on local food, though. Um, I don't really have a call to action this week, though. I guess try to eat local foods. It's August. You've got no reason not to.
0: yeah. Yeah, I guess you could harass your uh <laughs> your member of parliament or your your local harass government employees all the time. I always encourage that, but I, I I don't know what you would say about it other than, hey, let's give our agricultural workers PR maybe? I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Um that's a great suggestion. yell at your member of provincial parliament about giving a pathway to citizenship and giving health care to migrant workers. No waiting period. That's dumb. Give them health care.
0: Well, on that note, thanks for listening, everybody. I had a great time right until the last 30 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man.